0: Heini pi heini pi heini p kini karagiwi waziregi waga nakshana wajan na hijan kishana heni karagiwi na hanachni Pi ahara jadowin p g wo nakshana we te chahe wakshu wi raje hamte harmihe harami he ham je wi ham kabara naga hijan Good morning and greetings from the land of eleven federally recognized nations, or as everyone else calls it, Wisconsin. I am doing fantastic, and I sincerely hope everyone else is as well. Well, here we are at the end of another calendar year, and we've all been so very, very busy, I hope. What well, was so much going on in the world today, I was hoping that maybe, just maybe, We could set aside a little quiet time and just focus on our little piece of it here. Time being the second most precious gift our Creator has bestowed upon us. It's extremely important to me that I honor those of you who have decided to spend some of your valuable time with me by providing the highest quality entertainment that I can provide. It's kind of redundant. So, thank you very much for listening. I welcome and actually encourage feedback from everyone who listens and if you spend some of your time and critique the podcast, I will definitely get back to you. If you only hire people who are smaller than you, we shall become a company of dwarfs. If, on the other hand, you always hire people who are bigger than you, we shall become a company of giants. That's David Ogilvy. The most likely interpretation is that Mr. Ogilvy advocated for the hiring of people who are more skilled and knowledgeable than you in their respective fields. Seek out people with significant potential who can grow and excel beyond your current capabilities. Hiring individuals with raw talent and strong learning abilities allows you to mentor and cultivate future leaders within your organization. Surrounding yourself with highly talented individuals, even if they surpass you in specific areas, will ultimately elevate the entire organization and lead to superior results. This aligns with the philosophy of hiring giants to build an organization of giants. I've been thinking a lot about what the Ho-Chunk Nation does actively in terms of welcoming our college-educated Ho-Chunk young people back to the nation. What the nation does to integrate these individual skills and education so that they may make contributions, and begin to help their people. One of my recent guests, Daniel Cardenas, affirmed what I had suspected was a problem throughout indigenous America for a majority of nations. He mentioned the brain drain that afflicts our nation due to lack of career opportunities and a turnoff to tribal politics. I even had a tribal member mention that our leadership had shared some thoughts about this issue on their social media postings. I like to think that that the guests on this podcast are what influenced our leadership to address the issue on their postings. But even if they are mulling over the same issue that I see, it helps me to recognize that I'm not just some outlier shouting deep into the void and that I'm not alone on this issue. It's comforting that our Ho-Chunk leadership is giving thought to the weighty issue, this weighty issue, and seriously considering the future of the Ho-Chunk Nation. As I was recently browsing the interweb, I came across an organization that calls itself 7G Foundation. Front page of their website states, We're a collection of entrepreneurs, coaches, and tribal leaders building on the strength of our ancestors to mold the next seven generations of the native native leaders through education, athletics, culture, and real-world support. There's Knowledge River, a privately held national native STEM initiative. Their goal is to initiate, collaborate, and create and disseminate STEM-related curriculum to Indian country. There is the American Indian Leadership Development Program at Campbell University in North Carolina and the American Indian Policy Institute at Arizona State University. And I'm sure there are countless others. I see more and more of these types of efforts going across in the indigenous america and i am encouraged that there is an increased recognition that nations and indigenous people need to put an additional emphasis on developing the next generation of indigenous nations leadership but i'm a tad bit troubled now when drug addicts or alcoholics go through inpatient rehabilitation programs and then they are quote unquote cured once they re-enter the same environment where their addictions began, there is a strong possibility that they're going to relapse into their previous addictions. Now, if our children grow out into the world, gain an education, trade skills, or some type of positive worldly experience, and then return with this font of knowledge and enthusiasm, only to be met with the same chaotic and dysfunctional political and social environment, their professional and personal development will be severely stunted, and their potential as indigenous leaders never realized. Now, you might argue that not every Ho-Chunk aspires for a position of leadership. Some Ho-Chunks simply want to finish high school, do a tour in the armed services, go to school, come home, and work in a nation's bureaucracy, or find a job in a nation's gaming facilities. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about Ho-Chunks who have goals that reach above the median. I'm talking about Ho-Chunks that want challenges. Ho-Chunks who have dreams and aspirations above the norm and have the mental capacity and drive to make it happen. It would appear that many nations, indigenous leaders, Ho-Chunk leadership included, recognize that now is the time for a seismic change. Okay, so lots of people recognize the need for change. What, if anything, is being done? I believe as Ho-Chunks, we need to attack this issue like any company or corporation would. Let's ask two basic questions. One, how do we recruit Ho-Chunk talent? And two, how do we retain Ho-Chunk talent? In both instances, it is imperative that indigenous nations make themselves more attractive for both recruitment and retention. In my mind, a logical place to start is to evaluate the talent currently available within a nation and objectively identify the achievers. Nations must ask themselves, what do we do for our achievers? Do we reward them? Do we reward them for outstanding results? Are they provided with all the tools they request in order to continue an upward trajectory of achievement? Does leadership provide support and direction for achievers? Does leadership weed out underachievers to make room for upcoming and incoming indigenous talent? In sum, do nations have an attractive place to work where their talents may be allowed to flourish? In the case of the Ho Chunk Nation, and likely many other indigenous nations, we are probably not a particularly attractive destination for educated and experienced Ho Chunk youths. We seem to not acknowledge achievements. We do not seem to value institutional memory. So, we are condemned to make the same mistakes over and over again. Achievement and success in a nation, it logically seems to engender resentment and jealousy instead of celebration and acknowledgement. And achievements are never explained to the Ho-Chung citizenry so that there is context to what a particular achievement means to the nation overall and for ho Chunks themselves. This, in spite of the fact that the legislature and office of the president each of a public relations representative. The reality of the state of the Hunchuck Nation is, overall, we are not an attractive place to start a career because the nation does not value its high achievers. Once a high achiever is arbitrarily or moreover politically released from employment, what kind of message does that send to educated and experienced would-be leaders? Our people are all connected in one way or another and with the proliferation of social media, it does not take long for tragic news to travel. And once that Ho Chung student or grad hears of this kind of news, they will undoubtedly be hesitant to seek employment in such a chaotic environment. Their abstract and idealistic desires to quote unquote help their people be damned. As I have said, I am heartened ah, excuse me. <laughs> I am heartened by the efforts across Indigenous America to ready Indigenous youth for leadership in their respective nations. However, there is a huge chasm that separates the desire to bring our educated and experienced children home for leadership development and providing the type of work environment that will attract and retain this precious talent. Indigenous nations are experienced brain drain because of the lack of opportunity. They are also experienced this phenomenon because of family politics which begets a substandard and unattractive work environment. It is very disappointing because of the recent renaissance of indigenous language and culture motivating our youth. In the abstract, they truly want to help their people. When I say in the abstract, I mean some may not know specifically how they can help, but they idealistically just want to help. With the recent emphasis and awareness that I see and hear on the internet regarding the desire to develop indigenous youth into leaders and with the self-awareness of our youth, indigenous nations are at an an inflection point. For our Ho-Chunk Nation, our elected leadership can help, but it's going to take more than lip service. People are sometimes swayed by thoughtful words, but for a true movement towards a stated goal to be successful, it will take dynamic leadership and responsible action. Doing whatever we can to make all of our nation's workplaces more attractive and doing our best to influence our elected leadership to do the same would be a start. We must take advantage of our population, our education, our land, and all of the funding that local, state, and federal governments provide. To recruit and retain our best, our brightest, and our most motivated will take the entire community, not just those who work in a tribal office building. If we are to be a community of giants, we have to hire giants and we must give them places and opportunities to build, to create, and to thrive. It is up to us to build a bridge for our youth to cross so that they might, in their time, come to a chasm deep and wide. And build a bridge so that those behind them will cross safely and continue the process forever and ever for their people. Kitty Weta High Um During the interview, um, I screwed the pooch with some of my equipment. So we had to break up uh, Lincoln Marks' interview into two sections. Um, this wasn't planned. This isn't some uh, great idea of mine. Um, I just screwed the pooch. So... Just to let you know why we broke it up into two sections. No reason. Just a mechanical fiasco on my end. Okay. One of the things that um, we were talking about is the feedback. And what answers um, did you suggest to some of the people out there that were uh, objecting to what you said? Um, How do we fix this problem? How do we rectify this with um, gatekeepers?
1: Well, funny. Funny thing is, I was expecting those, and you know, I, I always welcome you know the dialogue and the chance to try and you know get to the bottom of these issues. But a lot of these people that are in the positions to to hear those things and to take it to their local you know tribal councils to fix them are people of not my generation, right? They're the older generation, and you know, I get my stubbornness from somewhere, and it's I'm pretty sure it's from my you know my former elders. And <laughs> when you try to to, to offer a new perspective to someone who's just from a different generation, they they don't like it. They, it's, it's hostile. And that was kind of the feedback, the general feedback from my videos is, you know, I've gotten these, I don't want to say they're bullying messages, but people saying, you shouldn't be questioning elders like that. You shouldn't be saying these things it's disrespectful. You know, you you need to listen to what they're saying. It's like, <laughs> Well, that's that I think that's what people have been doing you know for generations, generations has been listening and this is this is not to say to be disrespectful to your elders this is just saying to a certain extent because of decisions made prior to any of us being born those things are hurting us today and is it possible that if we change some of those things we might see a different outcome that's all I'm suggesting but to even ask that, to, 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 to mention that, that is being disrespectful. And that's kind of been the general feedback of you shouldn't be saying that. So everyone that has been, you know, saying like, well, if you can't be in these doors anymore, you should run for office. You should be in these rooms right there, right? So that, that's just kind of been what it is. But, you know, for me, I think from a ground-up level, right, tribes, they need to have their own come-to-Jesus moment, right? They need to, they need to just stop and say, you know what, there is a, there is a problem here. We are part of that problem, and it's going to take a lot of a lot of courage for tribal governments, tribal leaders, tribal community leaders, tribal representatives to say we have a problem. It's not always the feds; it's ourselves. You know, we can't keep sitting on our hands saying help us, right? You got to you got to get off one of your hands to do something. So, a survey of well, let's look at infrastructure pro- programs, right? If if we can start looking for simple investments, if we're if we're saying let's, you know, look let's fund scholarships, all we're doing is funding an education, uh and the education of young Native Americans to be successful off the reservation. That's all we're doing these days. And when we keep saying, well, we'll give you more scholarships, you'll give them the scholarship to go get an education, go to ASU, get the education, and they're staying in Phoenix. They're not coming back to the reservation. You know, It, it you have to take a hard look at the incentivization to pulling back your own members successful here. And again, that's going to be on a whole different level rather than just saying, we're going to fund more scholarships. Let's fund, a, you know, a massive you know, apartment <laughs> construction thing that would build many apartments across, you know, Indian country. Let's let's build places that are recreational places that, you know, young families can come back and have some, spend some time here, spend their dollars on the reservation to do something. But rather than funding these big casinos that are only meant for a certain type of population and most of it is just sucking the money back up from other tribal members. So it's just like, it's, it's bananas to me
0: you just mentioned that somebody asked you if um you should be involved in the process so have you considered running for office
1: that is actually underway um part of part
0: of what i'm i i'm trying to keep it under wraps but i mean oh this is a bad place to do it (laughs) Part of it is that I I need to not, right, is I'm
1: considering running for my local state house representative seat for District 4 in New Mexico, which is in San Juan County. And, you know, I can't fix anything within a box. And that's what it is if I wanted to try and run with my own tribal government, right? There's, I know, I know that there's things that are just not going to change unless it's forced to change, which is terrible, If I work something on a community level that works with tribes and that has the money and the support from not only tribal members, but non-native members in the same community, I think that's where you can kind of bridge the gap between the two and help those communities. So that's why I'm considering running for that office. I'm I'm in my exploratory phase right
0: now. Um, We're talking about gatekeeping. I've used that term um, more than you have. But is that endemic? to indigenous people, once we get a government set up that we fall into this routine and that we're scared to break it for some reason?
1: I think, well, here's, I, I guess I'm um, very happy to hear different people talk use the term gatekeeping. And I've been hearing that term used a lot. And I'm not gonna say it's because of me, but it might be because of me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I, when I, I think, to, I, think to, I see it more here, in tribal communities, right? In tribal nations. And it it's partly because our culture is built on respecting your elders, respecting the hierarchy of whatever respective tribe has those things, right? And I don't know. I mean I think so to an extent, but again that that goes along with if tribes want to be successful, if they're if they're if they're fine being complacent with the same old same old right that's going to have detrimental effects after that generation is gone because you have essentially cut your foot off right on a hike the future is up that hill and if we're not prepared to hike it a lot of tribes I, i i i've said it many times they will fail and it's it, it it may even may even be one of you know the the top big six tribes, but we have to take that hard look at ourselves. We are gatekeeping from a younger generation because we are deeming them incompetent we're deeming them unworthy because they don't know a language but unfortunately that's the that's the direction the world is pushing us. The world is pushing and, and evolving faster than tribes realize. I mean, we we can say that, yes, we wanna get broadband, but we're still talking about it. We should have done something about it.
0: Let me uh, change the subject here real quick for us. Um, I was looking at your resume and you've had a number of jobs, not a whole lot, but you're working in the same area. And then you quit your job after you posted this video or right before it. Um, Do you feel any responsibility to kind of work your way up the ladder. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they have to eat a crab sandwich for years before they're allowed to move up into the position. Um, what are your thoughts to critics who say you haven't put your time in, you don't deserve to uh, spot off like you've had?
1: Absolutely, and I and, and I think that's true. But what's also true is that's also not true for certain people, right? You know, I. It it's all kind of relative to the job, to the type of experience. In our world, it's to the type of degree you have, right? Why else would you build a human resources thick policy manual saying that, you know, we have ways to help you be successful in your career? That's why we created our own policy saying you can substitute your education for experience. That's why we created this. But when you're not even utilizing that to try and cultivate a younger generation to be successful in all of those roles across, you know, Native American jobs, it's just like, well, then you're not really, really honest with yourself to be truthful to that. I, I think, right. When people say, you know, you need to put in your time. I, yes, there are certain, there are certain circumstances where your job you need to put in your time. Again, that's not always true. It's relative to what you're doing. You know, if someone who's got law degrees, right, <laughs> you know, you need to put in your time. I did put in my time. I put in my time, four years, two law degrees, and a quarter million dollars of debt that I'm going to be working on for the rest of my life. And I'm not saying that, you know, I, I demand this. I'm saying that the sacrifice away from my family through the four if I wanted to, the, the decade of, of education that I put in away from my family, right? I missed, you know, my father when he was killed, right? My brother who died, that I, I missed the funeral on. Everything that I've sacrificed away from home to get this education, because that's what I was told to do as a kid, to get the education, because that's what you need. I put in my time. So when it comes to jobs that are directly related to my ability to do them, I think I, I was well within my, <laughs> my self-worth to feel right in, in getting that job. Um, again, I can't speak for everyone else because when when it comes to a job that you need to put your time in, it's gonna be relative to whatever job that job is, respectfully.
0: Well, you uh, certainly stirred the pot up with your videos. Um, what do you suggest for other Indians from other Indian nations? Should they follow your example and try to expose uh, these things that uh, is going they see going on in their nations, or is there another nation, another way to kind of like uh, work within a nation that work to solve these problems?
1: In a perfect world, if if every single and I'm not you know I'm not just speaking to to people who are just voters, right? I'm speaking to every. Older generation, you know, middle generation and younger generation of Native Americans, right, who who are listening to you, who are listening to me right now, in a perfect world, if you are a voting age and you get yourself to that voting booth to make a difference that would probably start to change some things but then you have the same people who are who've been in these positions for decades and saying that oh now we're gonna fix this now we're gonna go get land back we're gonna do all these things you're just getting caught up in what they're saying you're not actually wanting to do something that changes but since we're not in a perfect world we're in an imperfect world i don't think i just i just don't think you know ratting out everyone is always going to be the answer, right? I mean, to a certain extent, there's certain privacy laws that you and everyone else cannot just do, you know, violate. But how else are the people, Native Americans, non-Native Americans, hear the truth about what's going on in their in the government and the governments that affect the communities that they're living? How else is anyone else going to say, "Hey, there's a problem there." Let's go ahead and investigate that. If there's something wrong, let's fix it. Let's change it. Again, it goes back to that delicate balance of, we need to fix this. But it's gonna take a harder look on every single Native American out there to stop and say, well, if I can't, if I'm not living on the reservation, let me register and do a, a, a mail-in vote. Let, let me try to be proactive in some way that my voice, even if it's your vote, even though you think you may not, it may not count, whatever it is, just do it. Right? you just have to do it. If you want to see the degradation of tribes across America, just be complacent, do nothing. If you want to have if you want to see tribes have a fighting chance, be involved, be there, ask questions, but be respectful. You know, there's, you can you can convey your disagreements or your agreements or even your questions in a way that's not an in an ugly and disrespectful way. And I think that we're, we're missing those opportunities with our younger generations of Native Americans. But I think if we just kind of in some way motivate the people both off and on to be more active, if we centralize the information to where everyone is trusting in that system, that we can trust that the information is there and it's, it's, we don't have to expose someone, that it's already there, right? More public access, right? I think that might be a little bit more helpful to getting more people involved rather than the back door or the uh, exposing people online. Because it's, it's just like, I want the truth out there. But again, it shouldn't be in a shady way. It shouldn't have to be in newspapers. It shouldn't have to be by word of mouth. But unfortunately that's all what Native Americans have these days.
0: Well, we're at the end of the kind of the interview here. But I did want to give you an opportunity to, um, shill for a product, um, have your say what I just give, uh, my interviewees time to speak on whatever subject they want to speak on. So at this time, take as long as you want, take as little time as you need. Just, uh, whatever you got to say, floor is yours.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. No, I, I, I think people mistake my, my platform, um, my social medias across all of it as being arrogant or, or being disrespectful to older generations. That's not the truth. The truth is I care about my communities. I care about my tribe. I care about my family. and I care about the generations to come. I care about the generations still here. And as a kid, you know, born in the 90s, I've been hearing these same things regurgitated different ways over and over and over. And it continues to frustrate me that when I hear these new native politicians, we now fix the problem. Now. You both mean. <laughs> Tribes don't have that long. You can say that on a state and a federal level, but tribes, they do not have that long. Tribes are going to start phasing out within maybe the next two decades if, if we're not careful. And part of what I was trying to say is we need to pay, pay attention, especially to our own tribal governments, because we need to be involved we need to have those voices there and if you're not there casting your ballot right if you're not there asking these questions who else will no one is because i have the last 30 years to show that nothing's been done these it, it seems like Everything that I have said, everyone acts like it's a novel thing that I'm saying. And it's like, no, it's not novel. These things are the same things that I heard as a kid. And it's not hard to do what is simply right. As a kid, um, I always thought about uh, why, why I have this kind of this pulling or this calling. And, you know, everyone has their faith respectfully. And for me, it's... I don't have an obligation just to my family or my friends, right? I have an obligation to God, to God, to, to do my job. If it's, if it's to be a lawyer, if it's to be a lobbyist, if it's to be a politician working for the people, right? If it's someone who's in office, I have to, I have an obligation to God to do it and to do it well, to do it right. And I, I, I wish I could take that out of me. I wish I could just be at home on my Xbox, fast food, and just not giving a damn about the world. But unfortunately, I care, right? I care about my, my nephews. I care about the children in the community and the generations to come. So that's why I'm out there, right? I'm out there because I believe a better world, it's not going to take a generation to come, right? It can be done within, within 10 years, These things that we're all saying we can fix and do, if we just do it together right now, that will fix it. So to the naysayers that are just criticizing me and saying that I'm just, you know, I was criticized for being uneducated. I don't (laughs) think I'm smart. I don't think I'm smart, right? I mean, uh, I I went to law school, went to law school for four years and two law degrees. Um, There's still a lot of things I don't know right? I am I, not perfect. I'm the first person to say that I'm not perfect. And I am fallible. But I have it. I have the, the dedication and passion to want to see a better future for many, many native people across the country to, uh, to, to to come into fruition within the next generation. So that's why I'm also running for excuse me, I am now seeking uh, <laughs> signatures to run for <laughs> office, because I, I believe You know if the people believe me too and they trust in me to at least just fight harder for them if i can't get something passed at least i have a big mouth right and people will listen to that to to call out the problems and say this this way is the possible solution or this is that if i can at least do that then i can go to my deathbed thinking you know at least i've tried and i gave it my 110 percent
0: that's my spiel (laughs) well said sir um, uh, before we end the interview, if people want to get in touch with you, um, how can they do that?
1: Um, well, all, all my socials, they have the, uh, the message, you know, um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Um, I'm, I'm all of those places. Um, I, usually when something goes viral, I get a, a tons of messages and I try to filter through it. But here's the reality of it is that sometimes a lot of it's just a lot of bullying and hate. So it's like, well, let me. I mean, you know, for my own, you know, (laughs) mental health, I just kind of have to take a break from it, but I'll get to it. Um, But that's the only uh, areas that I currently have uh, set open um, until I get something more officially established.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Lincoln Mark, formerly uh, Government and Legislative Affairs Associate of Navajo Nation, TikTok star. Um, (laughs) Thank you. And uh, let's do this again sometime.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I appreciate it
0: a kitty with a high paint. it's a little after the fact but i thought i'd ask the class for a little help anyways i read not as much as i used to used to be a reading fool as a ute. sci-fi and history's my genre to show you what a social loser i was as a ute, when i first met my wife as a child she knocked at my door and asked me if i'd come out inside, come outside and play i said nah I'm reading a book right now so, I joined a book of the month club when I was in a service. Spent so much time in a camp library, social services tried to get me transferred. There was this uh, two book set entitled War in the Shadows. Myself and another individual were in disagreement over the two, vo- two volumes legal ownership. We decided to go outside and discuss the legal ownership over said volumes. I recall a lot of blood, black eye, torn clothing, and, a road, and, and some road rash. We settled on $30, and I still have one of the volumes. Right before I was discharged, I spent $3,000 on leather bound encyclopedia Botanicas. Man, I was a nerd without the certification. But life gets in a way, and I fell away from my passion. With the written word. But as I've gotten older, I find I don't have the time to pursue the things that used to occupy in a large percentage of my time. So, I'm reading a lot more, but my genre has changed. I like to read books on indigenous Americans by indigenous Americans. Tough to find a lot of titles, though. History. History. I just finished Blood Struggle, The Rise of Modern Indian Nations by Charles Wilkinson. It was informative. It was informational, to say the least. Hardly a page-turner, but it was still pretty good. I learned a lot from the book. I reordered copies of *Custer Died for Your Sins by Vine Deloria Jr., Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D Brown uh, last year, of course. But I was wondering, what other books on modern indigenous history should I pursue and put in my library and read? The history of AIM with Dennis Banks and Russell Means, a biography of Wilma Mankiller? What about, the Reese, uh, what about recent Supreme Court decisions? What, how about the uh, Winona La the Oka Crisis in Quebec? The 70s Walleye Wars in Wisconsin. Are there any books on the recent Ho-Chunk history? The whole golden nickel and six-pack fiasco? The gaming revolution and how this has affected indigenous America. What books are important to indigenous American history and that I should be made aware of? It seems that every year a celebrity or political figure is writing a book Rarely do I see indigenous people write books and get on the publicity tour bus. Now, I could just live uh, in a cave under a rock out in the woods. But hey, I'm asking for a little help here. I can be reached at any of the social media sites under Chiporike, or my email, which is moneykucksick at gmail.com. That's M-A-N-I-K-A-K-S-I-K at gmail.com. Now, you could help brother out and suggest some titles. And uh, rather quickly, you know. I'm, I'm getting old. Hanachpi Narajiwina. Shige Hane Chawigi. Hira Kikara Today, I am honored to have a TikTok sensation, if you will, with us today. Uh, Mr. Lincoln Mark, um, thank you for joining us, sir. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you for that introduction. Um, Really good. Uh, For some reason, the weather has turned, so it's gotten really, really cold. So I'm just uh, sitting and just keeping warm.
0: Fantastic. Let me uh, start by saying I first encountered you on your uh, TikTok video discussing uh, the subject of gatekeepers and then I watched a few more of your videos. Now, before we get into the meat of the conversation, I'm just wondering if you could give us a little background on as to who you are, who your family is, your educational background, a little bit of your job history, if you could
1: yeah no definitely so again yeah my you said it right my name's lincoln mark uh fun fact you know my name used to be shelby lincoln mark what? so uh yeah no definitely <laughs> <laughs> so when i turned 18 i you know so this we can share on this later but the little little top of as to why i changed it um I, I used to get bullied a lot in school and, and throughout my entire childhood so i was like you know what when i'm 18 i'm gonna be lincoln and i'm gonna go out into the world and be who i want to be and be known by that name. So that's when I uh, turned 18, went to court, petitioned, name change, everything. So, um, yeah, that's that's a little fun fact on that. Um, but uh, to you, I, and, and to everyone, you're welcome to call me Shelby as well. Everyone in uh, my family does too. Uh, but Shelby Lincoln Mark, but Lincoln Mark, um, uh, my stage name, I guess, um, from Shiprock, New Mexico, born and raised on the Navajo reservation uh, at around, uh, when I graduated from Shiprock High School, in two thousand and eight, and then went to um, c n n which is the community college in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then did some time there had credits transfer over to the main campus uh University of New Mexico, um, where I majored in political science and a minor in business administration um, and then after that, I went on to the pre law Summer Institute program, which is like a summer you know participation you know law school crash course trying to prepare up-and-coming Native American students from all across the country and, and getting them ready to to be prepared for the first semester in the first year of law school. So I did that, completed that. The uh, alumna of, of that program include people like Deb Holland and, you know, the uh, first uh, Navajo Nation Attorney General woman um, and many other people. Um, after that, I went on to the program over at the University of New Mexico School of Law um, the Masters of Studies in, in um, Masters of Studies in Law, where my concentration was in Federal Indian Law. And a little fun fact is, I was also the second student ever to get that degree from that uh, school because it was a new program, but the first Native American student to actually finish that degree in one year. Um, and then after that, went to the University of South Dakota Kenans School of Law for the Juris Doctorate program. Um, but Along with my educational endeavors, you know, I, I have my family's all here, in in New Mexico, the Four Corners area, you know, Arizona, Utah, Colorado. So we're we're all from here. My mom, uh, her name is Dina Devore. She's been in public uh, health services and. Uh, has joined the, had joined the uh, United States um, Public Health Services Commission Corps, where she just recently retired this year. So she's well-earned, um, you know, serving the, the country as well within the public health care system. Um, my father was um, uh, born uh, in the area as well, uh, but unfortunately he was killed by a drunk driver in 2011. So um, he's, he's buried just right up the hill from our house here in Shiprock, New Mexico, uh, but his name is Larry Mark, and uh, the Marks and the Pauls, uh, we have deep roots in, in 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 the area of, you know, the four corners of New Mexico and Arizona.
0: Well, let me ask you real quick, then. Why law?
1: Why law? You know, well, let's see, that's any. So as a kid, right, and it, it, everything that I the foundations of my understanding of growing up, you know, res life and into the modern world all root back to me growing up. And as a kid, I, I never knew what – I could never understand. I guess I was too young to know, right, is that the injustices, the unanswered questions, me asking why and being reprimanded and yelled at for saying, don't ask those things. You're, you're too young to know. And things that just never made sense that just should just be simple answers that could fix something or just things that should just be right as a kid, I didn't know what this was. And my dad would always lay on the floor watching, you know, it's either MASH or some law movie, law and order or something like that. And, you know, I was just always happy to be with my dad. So I would just like, like lay next to him and I'd watch. And then for some reason, I think this is when my stream of consciousness just kind of like became more fine tuned. And <laughs> I realized that these people who are in these, you know, you know, prestigious rooms, arguing and having to kind of bow down before one person in a black robe, they're called lawyers, right? They advocate for people. They advocate for the truth that they, as they are trying to advocate for. And that's when it made sense. Like, these are, this is a lawyer. You know, these are the people that are arguing and, you know, they're, they're right because they're arguing and they're trying to fight for a truth. And ever since that, as a kid, I kind of, you know, morphed my whole, you know, ideology of... Right and wrongs in the world and the moral compass that I've built of myself coming from the reservation and those experiences that that's kind of how I've always wanted to try and fix the wrongs in the world, especially in, you know, in Indian country and especially, you know, the the wrongs of the past try to fix them or try to bridge the gap that, you know, that is conducive to a, a, a better future that is, you know, restorative and healing. And it's just kind of always been like that. I've never lost sight of that, of just wanting to do what is right for people.
0: So was your um, first and um, basically only client you wanted to work for was the nation or were you looking to uh, branch out into other um, areas of law?
1: Well, here's the thing, when it comes to me wanting to help people, you know, I worked as a prosecutor, and I I probably should have told you my background for employment. um, But I was briefly a prosecutor, tribal prosecutor here for the nation. And you know, it's good trying to help victims, right? Because we—it's—it's—it's broad knowledge, general knowledge all across Indian country that the resources and the people and the laws are all not there. Trying to that that should be protecting you know young, you know native people across any you know all all types of generations across the country. It's that the, the justice system is failing Indian country. So when I came back to serve the nation uh, as a prosecutor, I had high hopes to wanting to try and change that. But again, as I learned, what, as my other job in D.C., you know, there's a system that is that is so stubborn, even stubborn, you know, more than me, right? That it's going to be it's going to take more than just trying to change something by one case that's why i've always kind of thought well you know i have these i have these degrees i have all of these experiences from different sectors of all, all across you know uh, working and experience across the country why not just go into legislation if i really want to fix things for people it's better that I try to fix things for people that are on a community level rather than on an individual basis. Though I would prefer individual because you can see the results right immediately when something's done. On a community level, though, you know it shouldn't be that hard to do the same thing. But again, it, it's there's there's systems in place.
0: All right. Well, that that kind of helps me along when I ask my next question. But um, you did you posted on TikTok. A video on gatekeeping um there's a little bit more to it but i'm just kind of synopsizing synopsizing synopsis <laughs> all right whatever i'm trying to say there i'm trying to use that word and i can't um i did a podcast um using the same thing as your tiktok video so let me ask what made you post the tiktok video on gatekeeping
1: uh, well, first let me just say thank you. Um, I've been getting words across the country from all across Native America of different people from all across you know, different tribes and age groups saying that they've experienced, if not the same thing, the same issue. And here's how it came about, right? Um, I was working in DC for my tribe at the at their Washington office in Washington DC. It was sort of, you know, a government to government kind of embassy to where we would have to try and be right there in the rooms where all of these decisions that are affecting Native American, all of these tribes, were being made. So that was the point of the office out there. Doing good. I was I was, you know, one of one of one of the best policy writers right our our analysts i should say out there and meeting all of these people and, and 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 just doing my job very well um there came a point where the executive deputy director was um stepping down and they were looking for a replacement initially i was asked by the director if i could replace um you know this person i gave it a day thought on it and thought you know what even though I had some reservations on continuing because of the the prior things that I explained in that video, I thought it it should be different because I would be doing a little bit more with without having those strings attached, without having someone kind of, you know, holding my hand along the way saying, Don't say this, don't do this, because I would be someone who is in a bit of an authoritative position to make those decisions myself. So I decided to like, you know what, I'm going to recommit myself to, to working here and making this work. And I, and I told him I would accept the position. About a week later is when I get a, um, a call to meet with him. And he said that the employment office, that, that every, you know, the human resources of the Navajo Nation said, no, you're not qualified. You're not qualified. I think they said two things, but they were essentially related. Lack of supervisory experience, which... I think it equated to a lack of experience, and it said four years of lack of uh, supervisor experience. So I was like, "Oh man, I was disappointed." And then I was approached by several people who had worked had through the work, system, through the system, Apple Nation uh, Human Resources Department, and said, "You know what? There's a way around this. In their policies, it says you can substitute your educational credits experience for you know to fill the gap for that." Right? It's like, "Oh, perfect." So. Submitted this huge thing and sent it in. And then like, I uh, like, I don't know, it took a long time, like a week and a half later, I got a reply saying no. So I submitted an appeal and I submitted an appeal to the HR director. And for some reason, it takes a long time. And I I, I listed out verbatim some of their own policies in that appeal letter and listed my, my educational uh, work credits, even my related experiences that I said should be acceptable substitutions for this. And got an email back saying saying the exact same thing word for word, you know, you're unqualified. My decision is final, but please apply for other positions within the nation. It's like, so it was kind of like, there was no explanation as to what happened. So of course, you know, I'm human. I was pissed off that day. I was so mad. I was just like, there was no explanation. How can you expect people, young natives, to learn? To, to first of all, you t- you coax them back, and then you say, you know, you can be successful and help your help your people. And in uh, all of this evening, I was just mad thinking of all of this. So I was like, you know, I'm gonna make my video and vent it out, and that's what I did.
0: What was um feedback you got in your amongst your own people and. a Indian country you said that you've gotten a lot of feedback. was it all positive or was there some um, negative feedback along with that
1: most of it was positive um, there was some feedback so and here's here's the tribal politics part of it um, so you know my tribal government we have the president vice president, and the executive office right and then we have our council and within the council there's twenty four council delegates and Council delegates, you know, they're just representative of their different chapter regions all across the Navajo Nation. So when I was working out in D.C., I got to know some of these people. And um, a few uh, delegates voiced their concerns saying, you know, Lincoln is, is he's sending a bad message. He's making Navajo look bad. He's 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 making all other travel uh, leaders look bad. He shouldn't be posting that. He should take that down. So about like a day or two later, I got a call from my boss saying, hey, I'm just looking out for you. Uh, There's a video that's going viral pretty fast. And, you know, I just... Want to let you know that I've been getting calls about it. And I was like, why, why? Like, this is this is from. I, well, first of all, it was on my personal time, and it's of my personal experience of what I'm trying to do. You know, to to advance myself, to better myself, but also be in a position to help. You know, the Navajo Nation in D.C. Right? Um, and he's like, Well, I've been getting calls, and some of the some of the delegates are not are, are pretty upset about it. And you know, I just I'm just looking out for you. I said, Well, what does that mean? You're looking out for me because I just want to make sure you're okay. And I was like, I get that I'm okay, but. What do you mean you're looking out for me? He goes, like, you know, I just, I'm just making sure you're okay. And I was like, well, of course I'm not okay. You knew how important this position was to me. And he goes, well, I know you're upset, but, um, yeah, I'm just looking out for you. <laughs> and he kept saying that word. And I was like, what does that mean? So, uh, you know, the, the conversation ended. And, like, maybe about a week later I get a text from one of the council delegates saying, like, oh, I, I saw one of your videos. And um, I just want you to let you know all of these senators and representatives are upset with what you're saying. Why would they be upset about transparency and, and highlighting issues that could, you know, potentially fix a problem that would lead to a better future for Native American tribes? And I I think this council delegate was under the impression that I was still working for this office. So she was trying to, you know, intimidate me by saying, like, you know, if you keep doing this, I'm going to bring it up to your boss. And to and it was like, it felt like a little bit of a warning. And at that point, I had already quit. So I was like, it's it's, you know. I was getting on my back like it's not going to affect me, but then you know I'm pretty sure this person found out I wasn't working at the DC office, so I never heard from them again. Um, but no, the feedback has been mostly positive because a lot of you know when you when you take a survey of a lot of tribes across Native American everywhere, right? A lot of these people are not living on their reservations, you know for for. Navajo, about more than 50% of the population of enrolled members are living off the reservation. And these are the people, and I'm getting, you know, messages saying they would love to come home. They want to come home. But again, of everything that I've highlighted and across multiple, multiple videos, it's for those reasons that they don't come back.